James chapter 5, if you will. I want to talk to you tonight on healing in the local church. James is, uh, writes a letter. James was the, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem and um, uh, writes a letter to the Jews who have been scattered through the persecution. The book of James is one of the earlier books that were written in the New Testament according to the, uh, the best information we have, the best evidence that we have. And um, it was uh, probably written um, after the, the first wave of persecution that took place in Acts 7, Acts 8, around in those times. Um, probably three to four, maybe five years after the church began in, uh, in Jerusalem after Jesus was raised from the dead. The Bible talks about a wave of persecution that scattered the Jews. Uh, we know uh, about that as well in uh, some of Paul's writings. It talks about uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla who had uh, uh, had to leave Jerusalem because of the persecution that was taking place in uh, in the city and so forth. So it was something that everybody in that day knew, knew very well what was going on. And uh, apparently... Many of those that were saved in the beginning of uh, the, the the church beginnings in Jerusalem, you remember in Acts chapter 2, it talks about uh, 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 3, it talks about 5,000 people that were saved as a result of the man at the beautiful gate of the temple that were healed. Well, those 8,000 people plus the 120 that started in the upper room plus those that added to the Lord daily such as should be saved. We don't know how many it wound up being, but we can count at least 8,120 80, people plus more that we don't know how to count, don't know how to number. Uh, once the persecution arose, then a lot of those people scattered. Well, James was the pastor of the church by the time Acts chapter 15 comes around, which was about 10 years after the church had uh, had begun, after Jesus had been raised from the dead. And so James apparently whether these were people that he pastored before they scattered or he felt a responsibility as the pastor of the church at Jerusalem once he took over from Peter. We don't know what the case would be. But nevertheless, he felt a responsibility to, to communicate with those Jewish Christians that had, had to leave Jerusalem because of the persecution. So he identifies in chapter 1, verse 1, he's writing these to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. Now, he says uh, uh, many things. There are a lot of things he deals with that were specifically going on in the church of Jerusalem. But specifically also, uh, he, sp- he speaks of a doctrine of healing in the local church that we don't have any, in any other New Testament writer's letters. Now, I'll explain what I mean by that. I'm not saying that James is the only one that preached healing or, or taught about healing. But he's the only one that told us how healing works in the local church. He's the only... Uh, his letter is the only letter that's written by a pastor. Everybody else were apostles. And, uh, and so maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe he's, uh, used to dealing with people on a, on a ground level, face to face type of, uh, setting where, uh, where the apostles had more of a, a separated ministry. They went from town to town, that type of thing. But whatever the case was, James gives us some information inspired by the Holy Ghost that nobody else does. James chapter five, verse 14. He says, is any sick among you? Well, you sure wouldn't write that to the church today, would you? He would say, now, the great percentage of you that are sick. The implication is, and the, and the Greek language brings it out, if there is anybody sick there, there shouldn't be. Is there any sick among you? Is there any sick among you? So the, 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 uh, um, the assumption, the underlying assumption is that this should be a rare occurrence. I don't know if you know this or not, but the blood of Jesus and the price that Jesus paid for both sins and sickness, as well as uh, the price he paid for poverty, 
redeemed you from the fact that he redeemed us from the curse of the law is intended to make the church a sickness-free zone. Now, folks, if you start thinking like that, it'll change the way you, you operate toward sickness. See, so much of the modern-day church is people sick trying to get healed. And, boy, they're just trying to find that magic button. If we can only find that magic button and push that magic button of healing, oh, praise the Lord. And so many times people think the magic button of healing must be somebody that's got a special healing anointing. Some ministry will have, uh, have signs and wonders and miracles, and, and there are gift ministries out there that God sets in the church for that purpose, primarily for evangelism, but nevertheless, they're out there. Boy, they'll draw a crowd. And most of their crowd is not the one that God sent them to, which is the unsaved. Most of the crowd is the church trying to get healing when it should be theirs all the time. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. It's absolutely the truth, folks. God did not put gifts of healings and working of miracles and even special faith in the body of Christ for the church to heal herself with. Those are signs for the world, not signs for the church. The sign for the church should be the word of God put in operation in our lives. That's what James is saying. He's saying, is any sick among you? Now, there's something else about this, uh, this in, from the original language, the Greek language, that doesn't come out in the, uh, in the English. Where he says, is any sick among you? It literally means, is any of you past doing anything for yourself? Well, again, that substantiates what we just said before. The underlying assumption is sickness should not be in the church. It shouldn't be in the church. Now, there are going to be occasions, obviously, because he writes inspired by the Holy Ghost about these occasions. There are going to be occasions where somebody is past the point of being able to do for themselves. To receive their healing. And now he's going to give instruction what to, for, for what those people should do. But the implication is it should be a rarity. Now, folks, I'm not trying to bring anybody under condemnation. And if you're here to, to receive your healing tonight, that's great. We'll show you how. But you need to understand that this is not a the, the process. The Christian life is not intended to be a process of going from sickness to receiving healing, to going to sickness, to receiving healing, sickness, healing, sickness, healing, sickness, healing, sickness, healing. Receive your healing and then walk in health. That's what James is getting across. And the language doesn't bring it out. The English language doesn't bring it out. I don't know about where the translators were on uh, were at on this point either. And uh, I've said this before, but I, I think it bears repetition. A translation is only as good as the translator's understanding of two things. Number one, the language that they're translating from. And number two, their understanding of the character and the nature of God. That's why the King James English has a lot of, uh, a lot of verses that from the original Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament do not say that God put sickness on people or God killed people or God did things like that. Yet their understanding seems to be God's behind it no matter what it is. So they, they translated that way. So please understand, the original text is sacred. The translation is not necessarily so. That's why we need to be diligent. We need to be students of the Word to find out what is the Word really saying. You find a scripture that, that contradicts other scriptures, find out what the text really is saying. And with all the, the reference works that we've got and the Internet and things like that, that's a lot easier thing to do now than it used to be. So James is saying that sickness in the church should be a rarity. It should be a rare occurrence. 
But in those rare occurrences, those rare occasions, here's the instruction he gives. Is any sick among you? If there is anybody past doing something for themselves. Again, the implication is you and I should be able to do something for ourselves regarding healing concern uh, in the area of receiving by our own private faith, our own individual faith. That should be the first and foremost way that we go about receiving healing. We should extend our faith toward God based on what his word says. And I got to tell you, folks, we'll look at some things in uh, in the New Testament as far as Paul's ministry is concerned. But that's the very reason, in my opinion, that Paul doesn't talk about healing in the local church. He talks about doctrine. He talks about who we are in Christ. Because you learn who you are in Christ, you won't have to run after somebody to try to get healed. Now, thank God we have opportunity to help people that aren't there or don't know or whatever. That's great. No problem. But we all should have the understanding that that's not where God wants us to be. It's not this rotating healing to sickness, healing to sickness, or healing, yeah, healing sickness, healing sickness, round robin thing. Should we receive our healing, find out who we are in Christ and stay well? That's God's best. So he says, is any sick among you? Anybody past doing something for themselves? Yeah. James, there is. What do we do? He said, let them, him, the sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Notice he didn't say wait for a healing line at church. You know, some of the things that we take for granted as the normal way for for church to operate nowadays, you don't see a pattern for that in the Bible. You don't see Jesus running healing lines. You don't see Paul running healing lines. Well, why don't we do that? And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm not saying anybody's being unscriptural or ungodly or whatever. It's the best way to handle the crowds of sick people nowadays. Because it's not the situation that James was writing. It's not a matter of, is any sick among you? It's the majority of you that are. Here's what you can do. But notice it's the responsibility of the person who's sick. How many times have we seen that turned around and reversed? How many times have we seen people saying, yeah, well, I went to Brother So-and-So's meeting. You know, they have signs and wonders and miracles. They advertise them on TV. They talk about them in their newsletters. And I went and didn't get anything, so I guess they don't have anything after all. I guess the whole thing is just a big lie. What are they doing? They're trying to put the responsibility on the minister. James says responsibility is on you. Now, folks, I don't know if that's a blessing to you or not, but that helps me a lot. Now, I've got the same responsibility as an individual as you do. But thank God we can help each other. And that's what this is all about. Is any among you sick? Or is there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Now, here's the elders' job. Let them, the elders. Elders is a, is a modern-day understanding of elders would be the ministry staff. The ministry staff of a local church. Pastors, assistant pastors, those people that are in charge, those people that are in leadership. Let them, the elders... Pray over him, the sick, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now, anointing with oil is a real problem for us. Because remember, James is writing to a specific group of people. The specific group of people that James is writing to are Jews. Well, why doesn't Paul talk about anointing with oil? Why doesn't John talk about anointing with oil? John was in a Gentile church. He was in the church at Ephesus for many years taking care of Jesus' mother Mary. And then after that, after Mary passed away, then John was on his own, walked in love to such a degree, created such a problem for the governmental rulers that they tried to kill him and couldn't. 
So they had to exile the guy. He must be somebody that understands something about the power of God, wouldn't you think? Historical records tell us that he was boiled in oil and it didn't kill him. We don't know if it burned him or not, but it didn't kill him. And it was supposed to. Well, what do they do? Well, if you try to kill somebody a couple of times and it doesn't work, you wind up sending them to a desert island. What happened there? He was on the Isle of Patmos. That's where he got the revelation that we have of the end times. This guy was something. He understood who he was in Christ. He understood the power of God. He Apparently, he's operating in the same condition, the same type of situation as Jesus was when Jesus said, no man can take my life. Folks, I believe that belongs to everybody. You don't have to give up your life to sickness or any other thing. Now, you can if you want to. Jesus said, no man takes my life. I lay it down, and if I lay it down, I can take it back up again. In other words, he's saying it's totally up to me. Now, you can't tell me that John just got in this boiling, this vat of boiling oil and, and said, well, que sera, sera, let's see what happens. Not a chance. Paul talks in, uh, about, uh, um, about the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Paul talks about those who were martyred who refused to re- accept their deliverance. He didn't say God didn't choose to deliver them. He didn't say they didn't have faith to be delivered. He said they refused to accept it. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? They refused to accept deliverance that they might have a better resurrection. Sounds to me like they chose to lay down their lives. And they didn't have to. It was up to them. Now, I know that's extreme to some people, and some people think we're crazy, and and that's okay. That doesn't bother me. As long as I've got the word on something, I couldn't care less what somebody else thinks. But anointing with oil is a difficulty for us. Because the Bible says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Here's the only New Testament example that we've got of anointing oil, uh, anointing with oil in the church. Now, we've got a couple of places in Jesus' ministry where he anointed some people with oil, but that wasn't the church age. It was a different dispensation. Why does James talk about anointing of oil and Paul didn't? Paul's just as much a Jew as James was. Actually, he was a lot more learned, learned and skilled in the, the Jewish doctrine, the law of Moses, than was James. James was the half-brother of Jesus, who really didn't believe in Jesus when he was here on the earth. So what about this anointing with oil? Now, folks, the modern-day church has used anointing with oil kind of like the old uh, Catholic relics. Send in a special offering, and we'll send you a, a special bottle of anointing with oil. Something's been prayed over by Pastor so-and-so or Reverend so-and-so or whatever. Well, okay. Why is it not talked about in the New Testament? Because only the Jews had that as a part of their culture. The Jews would anoint things with oil for the purpose of separating that thing, whatever they're putting oil on, separating that thing unto God. The high priest, when a new high priest came into office, he had to be dunked. Well, not dunked, but but uh, poured. Uh, they'd take anointing oil and pour it all over it, just like it, it started with Aaron, who was the first priest. It talked about how they poured the anointing oil on him and it dripped all over him and stuff like that. They did that with every new high priest that took office. 
Why? It's a symbol of something or someone that's separated unto God. When the tabernacle was built, when the temple was built, the instruction was to anoint the elements or the furniture that made up the tabernacle with oil. Why? Because they're separated unto God. There were other places where animals were killed. But that altar in the temple and at the, in the tabernacle in the wilderness was, it was dedicated specifically toward God, and that's what the anointing oil was for. Well, the Gentiles didn't have that as part of their culture because they didn't dedicate anything to God. They didn't even know there was a God unless it was some statue or idol that they were worshiping. So for Paul to come through town and start saying, okay, now you need to anoint with oil. What? What's that about, Paul? Well, it's part of the Jewish culture. We don't even like the Jews. We don't want any part of their culture. You see why Paul didn't emphasize it? Paul went to the Gentiles. That's why James is the only one that talks about the anointing oil. Now, Paul talks about the principle. He says, writing in, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, he said, glorify God in your body and in your spirits, which are God's. Now, whether you know it or not, Jesus has already paid the price for both your spirit and your body. That means as far as his work is concerned, both your spirit and your body are sanctified, separated unto God. They belong to him. Now, you've got charge of it, of your body. And that's why Paul told the church to renew their mind to the word and present their body a living sacrifice. It's totally up. It's totally in our charge. But Jesus paid the price for it. That's one of the reasons why I refuse to accept sickness. Jesus paid for this body. I don't have a right to turn it over to the devil's work. Whether it's sin or sickness, either one. I don't have a right. The Bible says my body belongs to God. Well, then it would be only be right and proper for me to present my body as a living sacrifice to God, wouldn't it? Well, sure. So anointing with all is just part of the Jewish custom. It's something to indicate to them or remind them that they have been separated or are being separated to God for this specific purpose of healing. Now, if something belongs to God, that means that it doesn't belong to you anymore. If something is anointed with oil, something is sanctified under, under the work of the, uh, the service of God, it doesn't belong to the individual anymore. It's God's. Now, whether you know this or not, this is an element of faith. James is teaching them faith because he's saying your body does not belong to you anymore. Your body's not your responsibility. It's God's because it's separated in him through the anointing of oil. Well, what if somebody prays for the sick, anoints them with oil and prays for the sick, and the next day they're not any better? In James' case, talking to the Jews, it's not their problem because their body's not theirs anymore. In the area of healing or concerning the, the issue or the situation, circumstance of healing, their body's not their problem. So there's no point in looking at your body. It's not yours. It's God's. It's up to him to take care of it as he sees fit because it belongs to him. If you could get that concept over in most Christians, they'd find out, they'd find healing is a real easy thing to receive. But instead, what most Christians do is they are prayed for, whether in order with all or not, they're prayed for, and then they start checking the body to see if they're any better. Well, I don't feel any better. I guess it didn't work. Well, James is saying, your body's not yours anymore. The same thing's true for you and me. We just don't have the custom of anointing with all. 
But notice in verse 15, it doesn't say that the anointing of oil will save the sick. Now, the word save is the word heal. Now, what heals the sick? Is it the elders? Is it the anointing of oil? No, it's the prayer of faith. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. Notice it's God's job to raise the sick up. The prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. Now, why didn't Paul tell us anything about this? We know a little bit about Paul's ministry. Let's go back and look at some things regarding Paul's ministry. Take a few minutes. It won't take a long time. I won't go through everything. Let's start in uh, Acts chapter 14. This is Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. It's not the first ministry experience that we have, but it's the first detailed account of Paul's ministry that we have record of. Acts chapter 14, he's, uh, he's already been a couple of places. He's, uh, he's ministered in, in, well, the first thing that he does, first place he goes is, um, in, uh, Solomon, or I'm sorry, they were in the Isle of Paphos, and he took authority over the devil that was operating to hinder the government official from receiving the truth of the word. Now, let me let me back up to chapter 13 and read this. Verse 6, And when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man. That means this guy is the some, some governmental official, governor, administrator, magistrate, we don't know, something. He's some guy in charge. He was a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? Well, I wish government officials would want to hear the word today. I saw a, uh, saw a YouTube uh, posting the other day on a um, thing that Bel Air Presbyterian Church put out on uh, President Reagan, a tribute to President Reagan. He was part of the church before he moved to Sacramento to be governor of California and then moved to Washington to be president. And um, and it just showed things that he said, different speeches and different. Uh, uh, some of them were the, the the purpose of the speeches, the main theme, but other things were just things that he said. And it's just amazing to me to see where we've come in thirty or thirty five years. I mean, this guy this guy stood up and said, "Don't let anybody tell you that every problem that America has, uh, that the answer for every problem that America has is not in this book." Talking about the Bible. I don't think you could even get elected saying that today, could you? Well, anyway, okay. Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the sorcerer, here's the false prophet, the Jew. Elamus, the sorcerer, for so his name is by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. He's trying to keep this guy from hearing the word of God. Now, he's a Jew. He knows about the law of Moses. He knows about the power of God. He knows about the miracles that he did, that God did on behalf of Israel. But he didn't want this guy to hear. I wonder if he has a, a, a part in influencing him. I wonder if he's turning this guy the way he wants him to go. And that's the reason why he doesn't want him to hear. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? That's why I assume is going on here. 
Then Saul, verse 9, then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead by the hand, lead him by the hand. Pow! How's that for a start to ministry? Up until that point in time, it says that they went to to Cyprus, verse 4. Then they went to Salamis. They preached the word of God in the synagogues. And then they went to Paphos in verse 6. Third place that Paul has gone on his ministry journey runs into a guy that's just trying to keep the, the magistrate from hearing the truth of the word, hearing Paul and Barnabas preach the word, and bang! Paul exercises authority over the devil that's motivating this guy. And he goes blind for a season. Now, this doesn't say he was blind because God made him sick. It says there was a mist and a darkness that fell around him. And notice it was only temporary. God doesn't strike people blind. God doesn't have any sickness to make people blind with. It's almost like you, you remember the old uh, Peanuts cartoon? The kid that never washed, what was his name? Pigpen. Yeah, thank you. He had the cloud all over him, following him everywhere he went. Well, that's what this was like, only the cloud dropped around his head. Now, would somebody give me chapter and verse for that? Somebody show me where it says in the Old Testament, or Jesus even said in the New Testament in his earthly ministry, show me where he said, and if you run into trouble, here's what you do. Stuff like this will make you wonder, won't it? Well, that's what God's in the business of, of signs and wonders. Wonders make you wonder. So we can see from the first, right out of the gate, we can see that Paul understands the authority of God. The authority that we have in Christ and the power in the name of Jesus. Can't we? I mean, that's not a stretch, is it? You know, it's an interesting thing here. The only thing that he says about the Lord is, in the hand of the Lord shall be upon you. He didn't even use the name of Jesus in this thing. Oh, well, chapter 14, they wind up moving over to another place. Verse 7, well, verse 6. They were aware of the people trying to stone him, and they fled unto Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and under the region that lies round about. Now, this, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to stop here for a little bit. We may not get anywhere that we want to go tonight. I don't know. But I'm going to have to stop here. What's he running from people that want to stone him for? Why didn't he just make a big cloud of mist and darkness and blind everybody? Folks, this is not one size fits all. This is not here's what we did before, so here's what we do next time. This is a matter of being led and prompted by the Holy Ghost to do what is appropriate in the situation. In Acts chapter 13, it was appropriate for him to declare that the hand of the Lord would be upon Elamus to stop his evil influence upon a man that wanted to know the truth. But here, he finds out that people are trying to stone him and want to kill him, so he runs to the next town. I I think it'll be amazing. I, I know of some I know of three situations, I'm thinking right off the top of my head, three situations where faith preachers were killed in either car accidents or two of them was in a uh, were in uh, uh, airplane 
uh, crashes, small planes, not commercial, but small planes, private planes, and one in a car accident that should have had better sense than to be going where they were going in the circumstances that existed. But every one of them took this attitude that, well, bless God, we're faith preachers, we're believing God. The Bible says God will uh, protect us in everything that we do, so we're just going on ahead. And they died. Now, I don't know this for sure. Maybe we'll find out when we get to heaven. But I'm thinking that they probably have a better understanding of faith now than they did when they were here. Folks, you can't just dictate everything you want it to be by faith. There's a leading of the Holy Ghost. If you've got a leading of the Holy Ghost or a check in your spirit to do something, all the faith in the world is not going to overcome that check that you're getting by the Holy Ghost. That's why it should be faith and the spirit. Not faith no matter what. So they ran away to the next town. They ran to the city of Lystra and Derby, the cities of Lyconia and under the region that lies round about. Verse 7, and there they preached the gospel. Well, that's what they're out on their ministry trip for, isn't it? To preach the gospel. And there they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent at his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. Wouldn't expect this guy to have any hope for change, would you? He's been this way all of his life. Now, we don't know why. Maybe there was something missing. But there's something that's not working right. We have to we have to conclude that there's something that's not working right because the guy's never walked a step in his life. It's not like he walked and then got in an accident and now he's crippled. This guy's never walked. If the ability or the capacity to walk was there, he would have walked prior to this point in time. So something's missing. Something's wrong. Something doesn't work, right? I mean, I'm not trying to be deep spiritually here, but Doesn't that make sense? That would seem to me, and I've never been in that situation, so I I could stand corrected in this, but that would seem to me to be the most hopeless of all situations. And there they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent at his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, who, Paul, steadfastly beholding him, the crippled man, And perceiving that he, the crippled man, had faith to be healed, said, Paul said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, folks, Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So in order for this man to have faith to be healed, he has have he has to have heard the word of God concerning healing. Let me put it this way. He wouldn't have to be he wouldn't have faith to be healed if Paul's been preaching on water baptism. If Paul's been preaching on church membership, he's not going to have faith to be healed. And we've got thousands of churches that are proof of that. If this man has faith to be healed, there is only one possibility, and that is he has heard Paul preach on healing. Well, then what are we to conclude? Well, thank God that the man got healed. But what are we to conclude about Paul? Healing was very much a part of Paul's ministry. Had to be. First time in a new town. What's he doing? He's preaching Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the healer. So healing is important to Paul, isn't it? Acts chapter 16. 
Acts chapter 16, it says, verse 16, it came to pass. Here's not a, this is not a physical healing situation, but it's a, a, uh, an instance where Paul exercised authority over the devil to deliver a little girl. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a divin- spirit of divination. That means she was a fortune teller. Possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much good gain by soothsaying or fortune telling. They made money off her. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. Now, I don't know how many many days is, but it's more than a few. More than a handful, more than a couple. This did she many days. But Paul, one day came along, in other words, where Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and he came out the same hour. Why didn't he do that on day one? The fact that the Bible says that Paul was grieved tells me that the Holy Ghost prompted him to do it on that particular day. Why that day and not a previous day? Because God moves as he wills. But in order for Paul to operate according to that prompting to cast the devil out of this little girl, to take authority over the evil spirit by the name of Jesus, he has to know the power in the name of Jesus. So healing is not only a part of Paul's ministry, a prominent part of Paul's ministry, but deliverance is a part of Paul's ministry too. Acts chapter 19. Paul's in the city of Ephesus. He continues there for um, several years, three and a half in all. And during that time, it says in verse 11, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So healing and deliverance are once again shown to be a prominent part of Paul's ministry. Now, why didn't Paul tell the church what to do about healing? We see it's a prominent part of his ministry. It's a very important part. Why didn't he give instruction like James did? And, and, and for that matter, why didn't James say, is any sick among you? Try to get a hold of our brother Paul. Because he's having great success with these prayer clause. For a special one-time gift. He'll send you a special anointed prayer clause. Why is James telling people to do something on their own? Why is James telling people to do something in their local church? Why isn't he saying, go to the guy that's got the special miracles? Acts chapter 20. Paul is ministering to the, to the elders of Ephesus. He's, he's left Ephesus, come back. Left Ephesus, gone to other places, come back to Ephesus. He believes this is the last time he's going to see them because he's on his way to Jerusalem and he knows there's going to be a lot of trouble for him there. And so he begins to, to preach. Um, let's start in verse 7. It says, And upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. People complain that I preach a long time. For goodness sakes. And there were many lights in the upper chamber, that means little windows, where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus being fallen into a deep sleep. Now that's encouraging to me. Paul had people fall asleep in his services too. Being fallen into a deep sleep as Paul was long preaching. Now when the Holy Ghost says you're long preaching, that's a long time. 
he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. Now, folks, the Bible doesn't say it, but I'm just I'm just guessing that will ruin a service. And Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, trouble not yourselves for his life is in him. When they therefore had come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while even until the break of day, so he departed. Paul didn't even stop his message. He raises his kid from the dead and goes right along. Now they have some snacks for the remainder, but he keeps going. So we're talking about a guy that knows the power of God, aren't we? Now skip with me over to Acts chapter 27, I think it is. Yeah, no, 28, Acts chapter 28. Here's the last thing that we have record of in Paul's ministry. This is on the, the uh, he goes to Jerusalem, the Jews take hold of him, he appeals to Caesar, and then he goes to Rome. And on the the, uh, the journey to Rome, they wind up in a lot of trouble. The, the, he winds up on the ship that's taken in the middle of the storm. He tells them, um, he winds up being in charge of the ship because he says, I told you guys we shouldn't have gone on this voyage, but now the Lord has appeared to me. The angel of the Lord told me that he'd give me everybody on the ship if you do what I tell you to do. So everybody said, yeah, okay, that sounds good. So now he says, uh, the next thing he says is, uh, we got to stay together, but uh, the ship's going to be lost. We're going to be cast upon a certain island. On that island of Melita, it says in verse 8, and it came to pass that as the father of Publius, he was one of the magistrates of the rulers on the island too, lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So healing must have been a prominent part of Paul's ministry. So when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed. So Paul has a healing revival here on the, on the island of Melita. So he starts off in the power of God. And he ends up in the power of God, and we see sprinklings of spectacular, not just not just supernatural, spectacular occurrences of the power of God to heal people and set them free. And not only that, but God, in Acts chapter 19, verse 11, it says God did special miracles. What's a special miracle? Something other than your ordinary, everyday miracle? A miracle is defined as divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. How do you get special when it comes to divine intervention? That's a good translation. It means special. Here's the Holy Ghost saying God did special miracles through the hands of Paul. I agree. I guess uh, to me that says no matter what we think we've got figured out, God's always got something extra. Now, here's a question I've got for you. Why don't we have examples throughout the book of Acts and in Paul's letters to the church of the scores and scores and scores, the numbers and the multitudes of people that tried to get healed but just couldn't get there? Could it be for the same reason that we don't see any evidence in Jesus' ministry of anybody that came to him to be healed that failed to get it? Now, I don't know what you think about healing. And that's really the key. What you think about it is what you're going to have. Because your thinking influences your believing and what you believe for you get. 
So I don't know what you think about healing. But I do know what God thinks about it. He's pretty clear. Healing is absolute. The controversy, so-called controversy in the church about whether or not God heals everybody is the biggest lie that could ever be told. That would be to say that Jesus' blood covers it for somebody, but not for somebody else. That's to say God's a respecter of persons, and the Bible is real clear. He said he's not. So what are we to conclude from this? Well, James said healing in the local church should work like this. He's a pastor. You ought to know. He's a pastor that took over for Peter in Jerusalem. So he ought to know. Church history tells us that James became a pastor because Jesus appeared to him after he was raised from the dead. Jesus appeared to his half-brother, showed him that he was alive. Because like I said, James and some of his other half-brothers and sisters really didn't believe Jesus. Didn't believe in his ministry was when he was here on the earth. They all followed him around. They followed him around with Mary. They lived in Capernaum. But when they would go out and Mary would go, then the other brother, half-brothers and sisters would go with him. But you remember it was in Capernaum in his own house, that Mary and the other half-brothers and sisters sent word for Jesus inside the house with the disciples and those that were there to hear the word, hey, come out here, you've gone too far. And Jesus says, when somebody says, your mother and your brethren are calling for you, Jesus looks around and says, my mother and brethren are the ones that believe in me. That doesn't mean he shirked his responsibility because on the cross he looked at John and said, John, behold your mother, Mary, behold your son. But they didn't go along with everything that he was doing. Now, I don't understand that. Mary knows that Jesus was born supernaturally. If anybody knows about the virgin birth, it should be her. She was there. Whatever the Holy Ghost overshadowing somebody means, she knows. Yet when Jesus started talking about dying for the sins of the world, she says, no, no, no. You've gone too far now. How does she know? Didn't God tell her that it would bring her great heartache? Jesus' work would bring her great heartache? Well, I guess she's just like us. She forgot some of the things that were promised. It's easy to forget if you don't hold yourself to them, isn't it? So James became a pastor because Jesus, according to church history, Jesus appeared to him in a vision, proved to him. I'm alive. I'm everything that I said I was going to be. I fulfilled the work. The sacrifice on the cross. Now I'm alive. Now I've got to work for you. And James, in a short period of time, was raised up to such a degree that Peter, the great Peter, took a second chair. It's pretty good. And James said, Is any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him. Anointing with oil. He's talking about anointing with oil. That's not a... We're Gentiles. Anointing with oil may be something that God prompts us to do from time to time, but we shouldn't make a practice of it. Because it's not a part of the Jewish culture. Or, I'm sorry, it's only a part of the Jewish culture. And I'm not a Jew. 
And Paul certainly didn't impose upon the Gentiles any of the Jewish cultures or laws or rituals. Neither should we. So it doesn't mean it's wrong, but it's not necessary. Why? Because verse 15 says of James chapter 5, in the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now, I want to show you one more scripture, and then we'll be done. One more scripture. I want you to look with me over to Mark chapter 11. If it's the prayer of faith that saves the sick and the Lord raises them up, and if they've committed sins, the Lord forgives them, then what we need to know is what's the prayer of faith? Because it's the prayer of faith that saves the sick. It's the prayer of faith that heals the sick. Luckily, I know it's just coincidence, but luckily, we have a scripture that specifically identifies what the prayer of faith is. Wasn't that fortunate? Mark chapter 11, verse 24. Here's the prayer of faith. Jesus said, therefore, I say unto you, what thing soever you desire. Well, this is healing school. We desire healing. The sick desire a well body, don't they? What things soever you desire, the healing, the well body that you desire, when you pray, so we're talking about prayer, aren't we? When you pray, believe that you receive them, the healing or the well body, and you shall have them, the healing or the well body. Now, that's the prayer of faith that heals the sick, according to Jesus. He said, we know in verse 22, he's talking about faith, have faith in God. Verse 23, he defines how faith works through believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. Verse 24, he tells us how faith works in prayer, which would be the prayer of faith. What things soever you desire, the healing you desire. When you pray, believe that you receive healing and you shall have healing. Compare that to James chapter 5, verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. The healing you desire. When you pray, believe that you receive healing and you shall have healing. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick or heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. The Lord shall raise him up is the same thing as and you shall have healing. Do you understand that? The Lord shall raise him up is the same exact thing as and you shall have healing. So what's the prayer of faith part again? What things soever you desire, the healing you desire when you pray. He's talking about time. See, a lot of people want to believe that they receive something after they see it happen in their body. That's the wrong time. The time involved that heals the sick is when you pray. Not when you see results. Not when you feel better. Not when the doctor tells you everything has changed. When you pray. When you pray. Let me ask you a question. Those of you that are here to receive healing, I assume that in most cases you've been to the doctor and the doctor has told you what the problem is. Now, the the, uh, the exception to that would be if somebody's got the flu and you know what it is and you don't go to the doctor for it or whatever. I get that. But in either case, if somebody told you that whatever they told you you had before, now you don't have it anymore. What would your reaction to that be? Am I safe to say that we'd be glad about that? Now, some people would be more expressive than others. I get that. I mean, some people would say, well, that's great. Other people would jump up and down, do a dance, and scream and holler and get everybody in the doctor's office excited with them. I get that. I'm not saying one way is right and one way is wrong. 
People react to things differently. But at the very least, we could say we'd be glad about it, wouldn't we? We would assume or accept that a weight had been dropped off of our shoulders, lifted off of our shoulders. Hallelujah, things are different now. That's what the Bible says you're supposed to do when you pray. Why? Because the prayer of faith believes that it receives healing when it prays. Not when the doctor tells you differently. Not when you feel better. But when you pray. And folks, I got to tell you, as a pastor for 27 years, ministering healing all the time in the church, plus the time I was working with Brother Hagin, that is the single most common obstacle to people receiving their healing. And it's a matter of timing. That's all it is. It's not a matter of believing. They believe as far as they know. They don't understand the timing part. They don't understand the timing of accepting it to be done when you pray. That's what believe you receive means. It means healing is mine. I have it now. Accepting the timing that when you pray, you accept it to be done then instead of waiting for the doctor to tell you it's done. Accepting it to be done when you pray. I believe I receive my healing now in Jesus name instead of waiting till you feel better tomorrow morning. It's a matter of timing. And if you can get people to understand the proper timing, you can get miraculous things to happen. Folks, healing is not a hard thing to get. Jesus already got it. As a matter of fact, sickness, overcoming sickness is not a matter of you getting healing. It's a matter of you keeping the devil from taking away what Jesus already got. It's a matter of timing. Healing is the easiest thing in the world. Because the same price that bought healing bought forgiveness of sins. You remember when you got saved? How hard was that? You may have had a struggle to make the decision. But once you made the decision, how hard was it to get saved? You prayed a prayer. Isn't that how you got saved? I'm assuming you didn't have a Paul on the road to Damascus conversion experience. I'm assuming you got saved like I did, either praying with somebody or praying by yourself or praying in church or whatever. You prayed a prayer to make Jesus the Lord of your life. It may not have even been the best kind of prayer you could have prayed, depending on the doctrine of the people that helped you pray. But it got the job done just simply by making supplication, praying according to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, right? How hard was that? Again, it may have been a big struggle coming up to it, leading up to it. But once you made the decision, it was the easiest thing you ever did. And you probably came away saying, I don't know why I struggled against this for so long. Right? It's just as easy to receive healing as it is to receive forgiveness of sins. It's just as easy to receive Jesus as your healer as it is to receive Jesus as your savior. Because it was the same price of Jesus' blood that paid the price for both. And the price has already been paid. Nothing left for you to do. Nothing left for Jesus to do. If you're looking for God to heal you, I've got news for you. Jesus is not coming back and taking another stripe on his back. It's already been done. Price is paid. So it's not a matter of what God's going to do. It's a matter of what you're going to receive. 
Just like it's not a matter of Jesus coming back and hanging on the cross for one more second to get one more guy or one more woman. Price has already been paid. It's simply a matter of when they choose to receive it by praying the prayer of faith to be saved. It's exactly the same thing, folks. Healing is just as easy to receive as making Jesus the Lord of your life. Simple. Easy as pie. It's a matter of timing. Jesus said the prayer of faith is, Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, the healing you desire, when you pray, when you pray, believe that you receive healing and you shall have healing. Anybody sick here that want to receive their healing? No? Got a healed group? Fine with me. Anybody here sick want to pray the prayer of faith to receive their healing? Okay, let's all stand together. We're all going to pray this together. But those of you that are praying to receive, well, some of you will be praying to receive. Others of you will be praying in agreement with those that are going to receive. Simple as pie. He says the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now, you may say, yeah, but Pastor Mike, aren't you going to lay hands on people? Nope. Why? Because it's not the laying on of hands that heals people. God can use that on occasion, and we do sometimes. Well, Pastor Mike, aren't you going to anoint people with oil? Nope. Why? Because it's neither the elders or the laying on of hands or the anointing with oil that saves the sick. Well, what is it then? It's the prayer of faith. And whether I lay hands on you or not, you're still going to have to pray the prayer of faith to receive. Whether I could pour a gallon of oil on everybody. And unless you pray the prayer of faith to receive, it's not going to do any good except get you oily. It's the prayer of faith that heals the sick. Everybody understand that? All right, so let's pray the prayer of faith. Say this after me. Let your heart agree with it. Don't just repeat these words, but let your heart agree with it. Father, in Jesus' name, Jesus said, whatever I desire, if I believe that I received it, When I pray, I would have it. I understand that works concerning healing. Even as James said, that the prayer of faith shall heal the sick. And you, Lord, shall raise them up. In the name of Jesus, I desire healing. Therefore, as I pray... I believe that I receive healing from the sickness that has attached itself to my body now in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. By faith, it's done in Jesus' name. Now lift your hands and thank you because it's done. Thank you, Lord. Just as if the doctor told you it's all over. It's all done. It's all passed away. Used to be there. It's not anymore. That's what you've got from heaven. You've got God's word that's greater than the word of the doctor. You've got God's promise that that outstrips any x-ray that anybody could show you. You've got something that sees to the core that an x-ray can't show. You've got something that deals with the source and the origin of sickness that doctors can't even touch. 
Thank you, Father, that healing is ours now in Jesus' name. Healing is ours now. It's mine. I have it now. Say that. It's mine. I have it now. Healing is mine. I have it now. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Now, what's going to happen now? Well, the Bible says the Lord will raise you up. It says you shall have healing. Difference in believing you receive healing and having healing. You believe you receive healing when you pray. And it's God's responsibility to get healing to show up in your body. That's what it means by the Lord shall raise him up. That's what it means by and you shall have it. In other words, it will appear naturally. It will appear in your physical body. You have it by faith in your heart. God sees to it that it shows up in your flesh. And when the devil comes and says, yeah, but you don't feel any better and you don't look any better. And the doctor hadn't told you anything's changed. So that you know that doesn't work. That's the point for you to say the Lord's raising me up. According to the word of God, the Lord's raising me up. My job is to believe I receive healing. And I did that when I prayed. God's job is to raise me up. Anybody ever known God to fall down on his end of things? He won't hear either. Your job is to believe that you receive. And you did that when we just prayed. So remind God. Remind him every day. Get up every day. Remind him. Remind the devil. We prayed Sunday night, 705, whatever it was. We prayed. And when we prayed, I believed I received my healing. Therefore, by faith, it's mine now. And the Lord is raising me up. There is no sickness that's strong enough to stay on your body if you do that. Because God's word never fails. Amen. Let's lift our hands one more time and thank him because it's done. Not going to be done. It's done now. It's going to show up, but it's done now. Thank you, Father. Thank you that healing is ours now in Jesus' name. It's so good to be healed, Lord. It's so good to be healed. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Amen. Is it done? Is it done? You decide, not me, not God. Is it done? In Jesus' name, it's done. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.